Oh, sidebar, just because we're you're looking for something. Yeah. Um, Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy were nominated for Emmys this morning. Yes! Yay! Best people! Oh my, how did the, why did that f***ing take so long? I don't know, but thank God it happened while they're still filming their last season, so there could be another one yeah. too. Yeah. Oh my God. How the hell did Eugene Levy become such a hot man in his my old age? God, that man aged well. I went to Ooh. a talk back for like season two, and I, and I, and he walked in and I went, I'm Damn. sorry, what? And I've been watching the show, but just yeah. in person, I went, oh, whoa, he had the suit and the th- I'm like, I have a crush on Eugene Levy this now. This is why I love older men. Like, it's about getting better with age. Oh my gosh, he is so attractive. Ready graphics? Ready theme? perfect example of what we meant when we started this podcast yes. about the the relevance of this show to today and sometimes the depressing relevance of the show to the to today jay thomas as jerry gold oh and i'm a kid again and on today's episode we'll be talking about season two episode six whose garbage is it anyway hi i'm lauren hey this is jesse and welcome to another episode Yes, we are on one of the episodes I've been the most excited to talk about, especially with current events. Uh, I've been okay about it. Lauren is really indifferent to uh, the the plot of this episode, um, the people in the episode. I don't it's care. Probably, she doesn't care about no, this episode. No, no, I'm very blasé about this episode. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, before we get into why Lauren cares not at all about this episode, I just want to start this by saying I think this mm-hmm. episode is an, a perfect example of what we meant when we started this podcast yes. about the the relevance of this show to today and sometimes the depressing relevance of the show to the to today and the the topics the fact that we have in the uh, in the revival we had a real life episode about this exact topic or at least a moment within in which we talked about climate change and what's happening mm-hmm. to our hor- our poor environment it's still going guys it was uh, nostalgic to read some words that I had not heard in a very long time. Mm, you mean polystyrene? The greenhouse effect? Oh, my! I, there were so many times <laughs> I was like, oh, no. Oh, and I'm a kid again. This, I know. This, wow, I remember hearing these words and being able to say them. Like, a child should... <sighs> a child knew the word polystyrene far too well. Well, I used to go to TCBY. Oh, yeah. Also a 90s reference we've talked about before. And Mm -hmm. you could only get a certain thing in the non-styrofoam cup. Yeah. But I would always ask specifically because, you know, Bette Midler told me to. Uh, (laughs) We listen to to Lady Bette. Yes. Um, To ask if they could put it in the paper cup instead. Mm -hmm. I remember feeling really guilty. And this is from that that childhood being being raised to not take the the polystyrene and the styrofoam. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, was when I moved to New York and finally being around Duncan, because that really wasn't a, a common thing in the Midwest where I grew up. And yes, now it's, it's a you know, northern course, thing, right? Yeah, well, it's a, definitely a coastal thing. Coastal, interesting, okay. Yeah, um, I mean, Minnesota is caribou coffee, so it's Starbucks and caribou out there. Now Duncan has made its way, don't worry. But when I moved out to New York over a decade ago, I was like, ooh, now I'm near Dunkin' Donuts and feeling really guilty that the size that I ordered was in the styrofoam. And I hated the paper tiny cups, but it's mainly because the lids were awful. But I remember feeling really guilty because I can't do a, a t- small coffee. That's just not what I do. And I'm so glad to hear that they're finally transitioning away from that because they were one of the last uh, 
companies that I recognize being like, oh, you use styrofoam. Yeah, and I remember um, as a young adult being sort of uh, fooled into all of a sudden believing that um, it was recyclable, which technically it is now, but Mm. I didn't realize that not in all states. Yeah. And so I had been trying to recycle certain things, you know, I was staying away from it as much as possible, but if you would get like Murphy with the food, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, okay, well, I didn't want this, but it's recyclable, it'll be fine. Only to find out from a roommate after a certain time I had been doing it that New York did not recycle it. And doing some research, Mm -hmm. apparently, it really has to do with the fact that it's not a moneymaker. Well, and that's, so obviously we have a lot to talk about this episode. We do, yes. And I I will... um, preface with we're going to touch several things um the issue of climate change and environmental activism is so large and so nuanced and so complicated that um we're just going to provide links to a bunch of resources it is so important that you educate yourself and we're not gonna be able to cover everything um nor fully explain the nuance of all of these things um but one of the things I find the most interesting that we're going to kind of talk about is the the myths that we are given mm-hmm. and the kind of bait and switches that we are given. Um, I'm really fascinated in the whole the plastic straw banning. Um, and, you know, one of those things is the, the reaction that we're that we have in this episode that we still have today, which is like, well, I'm doing my best. Yeah, but that was that was a really important part. I feel in the episode. Yeah, well, we'll talk about when she orders from the restaurant and the whole like, well, I asked, what am I supposed to do? So there's a it's who it's a it feels like a very new episode. I'm actually yes, this episode is the first one. And granted, we're only in episode six of season two. But it is the first one where I I was getting viscerally angry watching it that this is not streaming. I was very angry that this I cannot share this episode and make people watch it. I know. It's so well done. It's such a great balanced argument. And it it makes me it makes me angry that I don't have the ability to make people watch this episode. <laughs> so we'll do our best to or recap it. Do we? Anyway. Mm-hmm. Um so this episode was directed by Shocker Barnett Kilman. Who? Someone. And it was written by Cy Duquesne and Denise Moss, who, to remind you guys, still not on staff. They were freelancing, considering they've mm-hmm. written more episodes so far this season than most of the regular staff members. Yeah, they're killing it. A lot of freelance people. It aired November 6th, 1989. And just to remind everybody, which we talked about in the in the first season, it's how you play the game, which we do recommend you go back because we're not going to talk about the history of the character of Jerry Gold because we already have in this mm-hmm. episode. But technically, because Russ Woody created so much of the character in the dialogue, he is credited as creating Jerry Gold, not Cy and Denise, which is interesting. Is that interesting? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's there. There's the creating the mystique of Jerry Gold and the the character and the mention and the the name recognition and the idea of Jerry Gold that Russ did, and then having these two writers take that and then actually create the man. Yes. It's like Russ created the myth and the legend and they created the man. And then Jay came in, who we'll talk about as well, and taking what Russ created and what Cy and Denise created and coming together and we have this full-fledged character. And my goodness, is he... I? There's just something so wonderful about watching a character walk in and who is so already fully realized. Mm-hmm. 
it's so rare that a guest character, that a recurring character starts that full. Yeah. He's he had so much anticipation so that when he walks in the room, you go, oh, that's Jerry Gold. Well, and we'll talk about like everything that they say in response. You know, Murphy says, Frank says, Jim says, Corey, like every like one line that they have in reaction to when he appears is so full of a a history Mm -hmm. with this person. Like they Sai and Denise wrote this so well, like you really understand their their point of views. You get an idea with the way they say things about the their their histories with him previous interactions i mean corky has a very specific yes, previous she interaction does. that she talks about but there I, i've seen it very rarely i was thinking about i was as i was watching this episode i was thinking about other characters where i've seen this happen and the number one for me is beverly leslie on will and Grace. Oh, oh that's a good one great yeah that's somebody who walked in and were just so that guest character that it, and it didn't it it only grew from yeah. there. It wasn't somebody where it was like, oh, here's kind of a, a sketch of, and then over time they really get into it. This one, like the second that Jerry and Murphy start interacting, I'm like, oh, there it is. Like you see the yeah. future. And another actor who's been on Murphy Brown. So there you go. Mm-hmm. This episode aired November 6th, 1989. And the title, Whose Garbage Is It Anyway? is a takeoff the film, Whose Life Is It Anyway? Which is a Richard Dreyfus film. Oh, Richard. Which is funny because Jay Thomas and Richard Dreyfus worked together extensively. Yeah. Particularly people will probably remember him from Mr. Holland's Opus. Literally the first thing I thought of when I saw Richard Dreyfus's name, I was like, yeah. oh, Mr. Holland's Opus. So I'll go more into that when I talk about Jay's career. C- because, of course, they're forever linked. Yes. So the song is Mercy, Mercy Me, which also has a sub sort of parenthesis of the ecology. Its lyrics were written and produced by Marvin Gaye, who sang the song. It was released June 10th, 1971, which was a year after Earth Day was established, interesting enough. And it is, unlike other songs that we have, is actually about the environment. It really fits perfectly into this episode. It was the second single from his critically acclaimed 11th studio album, What's Going On. It peaked at number four on the pop singles chart of U.S. Billboard. And it was the first time that he really sort of veered away from love songs. You know, this was meant to be a social political commentary. And in fact, the rumors are, or the sort of lore, is that Barry Gordy didn't know what ecology meant. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, He uh, wrote the song in collaboration with two Motown hit makers, Al Cleveland, who did I Second That Emotion, which has been um, on Murphy Brown before. Uh, Baby, Baby, Don't Cry. These are all uh, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. He also helped write What's Going On, which was we just mentioned was Marvin Gaye's big hit. And Four Tops member Ronaldo Benson, also known as Obi. Hmm. Gaye uh, sang background vocals on the track, along with the very famous female sessions group, The Andantes, which we will go into later on in future episodes because they do come up again. And the Funk Brothers, who we love to talk about Funk on the show. <laughs> and uh, it is actually considered one of the most famous and successful songs of Gay's entire career, which is pretty amazing. It's amazing. When that song starts playing, There's, it's really... Well, let's talk about Marvin Gaye for, for yeah. a second. So uh, Marvin Gaye is a legend. This song, to me, is one of those songs where you hear it and that like smooth sexy sound of his mm-hmm. voice as it comes in on like the oh mercy mercy it is it's so quintessentially him the, the certain singers have that quality and when the song comes in it just washes over you in such a a truly iconic way and it you just start moving you can't help it uh so marvin gay was uh, is actually a junior i didn't realize that yes yeah he was born marvin pence gay jr most uh, notably known as the prince of soul 
He was born in Washington, D.C. on April 2nd, 1939. He was raised by a reverend, a very strict household. He grew up singing in church, as is very common for singers of this ilk. He was best known for his work as a soul singer-songwriter with Motown in the 60s and 70s. He produced his own records. And as you alluded to, he became very famous for the love songs. In the late 50s, he joined a vocal group called the New uh, Moon Glows that really helped lift him out of doing church revivals into love songs. And that's that really sexy, syrupy voice that we love so much. Became very famous for that. Now, Marvin's first certified hit under his own name would, didn't happen until 1962. But he was he was one of those people that the early years were all behind the scenes successes. He was a session drummer for Little Stevie Wonder, The Supremes, The Marvelettes, oh, and Martha and the Vandellas. I never knew that. Mm-hmm. So cool. Yeah, right? He became kind of known as Motown's Renaissance Man. He went on to break the top 40 for the first time on his own in 62 with his single Hitchhike. Now, he, throughout the 60s, he continued to show that range, which is why so many people wanted to duet with him. He worked a lot with Diana Ross and Mary Wells. There was Can I Get a Witness? And I Heard It Through the Grapevine. Things, you know, uh, these huge songs that we just grew up knowing. Mm. Um, I love that biography.com, which is where I got a lot of this information... For three high-flying years, Gay and Tammy Terrell wowed the country with their soaring duet performances of songs like Ain't No Mountain High Enough and If I Could Build My Whole World Around You. They were known as kind of the the royal couple of R&B. I love them. So much. So as you you mentioned, in 1970, he was inspired by the escalating violence and political unrest over the Vietnam War, which is what led led him to writing What's Going On. And it really changed his entire trajectory because what he was able to do was pull his Motown following into kind of a new era of his career, taking more risks with his music and his politics. And that's what led to Mercy, Mercy Me and all these things. He had a bunch of crossover success. Um, there's, we could talk about Marvin Gaye mm-hmm. all day. But primarily, he was. these were the big things he was known for. And what's going on really changed the game for artists of that genre being able to cross over and not just do love songs, not just be tokenized love love crooners. Now, he had a little bit of a comeback in 1982, working on his last album, Midnight Love, and the lead single from that is the highly known Sexual Healing, which was a huge comeback for mm-hmm. Marvin Gaye. And it earned him his first two Grammy Awards and an American Music Award for Favorite Soul Single. And that was toward the end of his career. So unfortunately, two years later, he died very tragically essentially he he was um killed by his father after a physical altercation um it's a very complicated issue i recommend looking it up i don't want to speak for all parties involved it was very tragic and um three years after his death he was inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame there's a very interesting quote that was at the end of his career he admitted he no longer made music for pleasure instead he said i record so that i can feed people what what they need what they feel Hopefully I can record so that I can help someone overcome a bad time. That's nice. Oh, Marvin. So shall we uh, get into some Jerry Gold? Let's get into some Jerry Let's Gold. Let's do it. I mean, if you're okay with that, Lauren. Um, we've been <laughs> waiting like two years to talk about him. And there's the thing. Two we're only going to talk about him mostly in context of this episode, which means there's so much more that I, I can't necessarily say. Um, I may, yes, I may have, allude, lots of I may allude to, we really try to stay away from spoilers as much as possible, but there might be a little bit about, you know, the future of Jerry, but I don't think it's too much of a spoiler. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's go. All right, so we open on Mercy, Mercy Me playing over, and it is a really de- depressing and well done 
opening mm. of the various forms of environmental negative impact thanks to us humans. Uh, we get shots of really dark bus exhaust. Uh, we pass over some power plants. It reminds there's it might be the same ones when I uh, go to visit my. Uh, my fiance's uh, family in Southern California, and we get off at LAX and drive for a while. There's this section of power plants that mm. we pass by every time, and I'm always just haunted by the sight of that. And I, these might be the same mm. ones because LA. Yeah. Uh, we just get to watch that beautiful LA traffic of many lanes all backed up going in both directions. I wrote, We see a vial of something sitting in water. Uh, we see a sign at a beach that says, Water polluted today, swimming may be hazardous. We, in the worst moment of my time in this episode, see a sea otter that's covered in oil, in which I just wrote, ah, in all caps. I, now, if our... I'm no, I was going to say, I wish that everyone could see your face, because when you talked about it, I just saw, like, just the... <sighs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, for, for our listeners who don't know, I know that it's kind of a, um, a trendy thing to love sea otters. Y'all don't know. <laughs> you don't know. So... I grew up half my life in Alaska as a daughter of a tour guide. I fell in love with sea otters at a very young age. They're basically like my sea alter ego. They're sea cats. I love them. I When I see them, I start crying. It's a thing. There's a joke that my bachelorette party is going to be at that place in California where baby river otters swim upon you. Um, like, they're my babies. Now, part of this is because I grew up in Alaska. And I remember as a child with my dad's tour groups and in school, learning about the 1989 Exxon oil spill in Valdez, Alaska. It is, I believe, well, we reference Exxon in this episode. And, you know, um, the oil spill happened on my birthday, my third birthday, March 24th, 1989 was a man-made disaster. It occurred when the Exxon Valdez, an oil tanker owned by the Exxon Shipping Company, spilled 11 million gallons of crude oil into Alaska's Prince William Sound. It was the worst oil spill in U.S. history until the Deepwater Horizon spill in 2010. Um, I grew up as a child going down specifically to Seward, Alaska, where they have a Sea Life Center. And um, I mean, it was well into my, my older childhood when there were people out there still working on cleaning up the effects of this oil spill. And it w- there were all these famous shots of the sea otters, of the birds, of all of the different sea life being cleaned up and tr- trying to save them from this horrible disaster. And they say um, nearly 30 years later, pockets of crude oil still remain in some locations. Mm. Seeing that sea otter shot, I'm almost positive it's from... Oh. The Exxon spill. It must be. Um, it's a it's a very specific pain to me. I spent most of my childhood guilty that that happened on my birthday and happened to these wonderful animals Aww. in this area I grew up. It was a it's a very personal problem for me that I feel so guilty. Like I have the, all these little childhood things. Like the Challenger blew up the year I was born, and the oil spill happened on my third birthday. I have all these random things that I feel existentially very guilty about. <laughs> So I feel I feel attacked by the editors of the opening of this episode of Murphy Brown. I can see why. <laughs> it hurts, people. <laughs> it hurts. Anyway, um, so we continue from My Poor Baby Sea Otter. We see trash in the streets. And slowly we come out of this, this opening segment into an interview on FYI. Murphy is thanking the person we only see the back of at this moment, but it's a female scientist named Dr. Sakura. She thanks this leading environmental scientist that she's given a lot of frightening details, but let's make it more personal. And Murphy posits this. It's 2050 in America. If we've made no changes in our attitudes or behavior, what is life like? And I'm going to read you this little statement that Dr. Sakura says. Well, I hope you're ready for this. 
You wake up on a summer day and find the mercury is already over 100 degrees. There have been a lot more of these hot days due to the greenhouse effect, and the air is so dirty. School children are not allowed to play outside most days of the year. Maybe you want to seek relief at the beach, but hotter temperatures have caused rising sea levels. Many of our beaches are gone forever, and even if you could find a beach, the water has been off limits for three decades due to pollution. So you head indoors. As you walk in, you are assaulted by the sight and smell of garbage. It's everywhere. We ran out of places to dump it decades ago. Now, just for reference, following this, Mm -hmm. when she says three decades ago, the beaches were off limits due to pollution, that's next year. Yeah. And 2050 and a lot of the research that I've read from back then Mm -hmm. and now is a date that comes up a lot. Yes, I actually have. I think it's from National Geographic or I have an article that specifically still references 2050 and where we are and what needs to be done. That is kind of the big year. But unfortunately, a lot of people are still looking at that, not realizing that currently we still have about a decade to change things. Yeah. Well, they're um, saying 12 years now, right? Yeah. Yep. This is where it is. So the Washington Post, I found an article where I was like, let's look up 2050. As of last October, the Washington Post did a great article um, that we will link to. But uh, talking about specifically emissions, by 2050, a recent report calls for a total or near total phase out of the burning of coal. Mm, yeah. And if we don't do that... We need to either stop emissions entirely by 2050 or find some way to remove as much carbon dioxide from the air as humans put there, meaning that net zero needs to be the new global mantra. This data has been around for decades. Yeah, that was the sad thing in the research is that all of these call to arms, so to speak, Mm -hmm. you know, they're not new. They've been saying them for a while now. And and this is this became a real topic in the 90s because of this. But also in 1988, it was a very hot summer. And it made a lot of mm-hmm. scientists and a lot of people kind of go, huh. Well, I shouldn't say scientists, probably more the, the human beings go, oh, mm-hmm. maybe this is something we should pay attention to. I mean, I'm sure. <laughs> Imagine. Yeah. Um, it was a combination of a lot of things, I should say. But particularly why there is so much happening in 1989 in terms of articles and a political uh, rhetoric was because mm-hmm. of this really hot summer, particularly happening in 1988. And I actually think that that's one of the one of the most problematic things for us in the in causing the phrase global warming mm-hmm. um, because I, I think there are many problems and there's a lot of uh, rhetoric that's been picked up and used for various terrible means. But one of the things that really stands out is this concept of global warming and the fact that all these were coming up because there was a hot summer. So then you have the people that are saying, well, if the winter's so cold, then it's not warming. Ugh. And the number of people that are looking for warmth as the key to climate change and really just simplifying and missing the nuance <laughs> like so I'm, I'm kind of glad that now we're saying the phrase climate change yeah. more than we're saying global warming because that was such an easy way for people to get out and be like well the summer wasn't as hot yeah anyway so this conversation continues and there's more terrible things we're going to talk about yes um except the episode. so murphy asked except the episode which is yeah. great murphy asks after that speech is it too late to turn things around which is a question we're still mm-hmm. asking And Dr. Sakura says, not yet, but we Americans have got to stop living in a waste mentality. We throw out twice as much garbage per person as the average Japanese and European, and our air pollution, half of it comes from our own tailpipes. Murphy has this great moment when she turns around and starts addressing the audience. She thanks Dr. Sakura, which, by the way, I just want to call out, is an Asian-American woman. Yes. So, yay. Appreciating that. Um, 
And she tells everyone that we need, she asks the audience if we're going to be, if we're going to go out killed by our own wasteful lifestyles. She charges the audience that uh, we have to give up these petty comforts and conveniences that we are living in the last chance decade. Mm. And to hear that 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, on a completely superficial level, if we can talk about Uh the camera for this particular Mm -hmm. episode, which is something we've never seen, which is we see a um, full view of the FYI studio. Meaning that where the audience watching this television show within a show would have been, um, although technically my understanding is now that I think about it is that that set was off to the side that the audience really could only Mm -hmm. see it on camera, but still Mm -hmm. the fourth wall, the fourth wall where Mm -hmm. the, where the cameras would be for the show show Mm -hmm. Murphy Brown is a wall because it's Mm -hmm. a, because Barnett has a 360 camera turn on Murphy and her interviewee. Mm-hmm. The understanding behind this was is that because it's so much talk is that he wanted motion to it. He wanted to make it still be sort of engaging to people. And I really think it works. Well, what I really appreciate, and I, I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to talk about it, was while this speech is happening and the the actress who plays Dr. Sakura does such an amazing job with pace. She does it, it, it takes far more time than how I just read it. Her Her pacing and the gravitas that she puts behind this statement is so so moving and and serious and as she's doing it the way barnett spins it is you hear the words but they almost become a voiceover as you watch as the you see that the entire studio is being affected yeah they're riveted they're riveted and you see as they go across uh are the rest of the gang at their desk at one point and you just see the guilt and the concern and the stakes of what she's saying across this desk and you see the you know the the PA is behind the cameraman watching like no everyone has stopped there is no bustle everyone is listening and it brings such a wonderful and, and I would say even including Murphy's direct address to her audience it really does that wonderful thing without completely hitting us over the head it's a wonderful kind of breaking a fourth wall meta moment of talking to Murphy's audience but also the audience of the show mm-hmm. and it it makes everyone kind of step out of the the disbelief or the suspension of disbelief of of filmmaking and it makes everyone realize that everyone's listening everyone is watching yeah and thank goodness it that's why i'm so angry i can't share this episode um anyway so she murphy ends her direct address with one of my favorite native american proverbs which is we do not inherit the land from our ancestors we borrow it from our children Mm. and as we fade out we find ourselves at phil's And at that moment, Phil is walking over to the corner of the bar, hands a glass of water to a businessman who's (laughs) really focused on what he's doing. And Phil's just extra chatty right now. Not our normal Phil who doesn't want to talk to his random clients. FYI really, Uh, you know, informed him this week. Yeah, he's he's really fascinated by that episode of FYI tonight. It had some interesting information. And he's asking this businessman who's kind of just ignoring him. uh, Did you know when people order a glass of water from an establishment, it, it actually takes three glasses? One glass to wash, one to rinse, and one for the ice. And the other guy is just like head down. Yeah, right. And Phil just goes, drink the water. I love the real life application of that. Yeah. Like, as he was saying that stuff, I started to feel really guilty. I was like, oh, oh, you're right. Because again, it's still relevant. We, uh, we pan out to the hero table where the gang is sitting and Miles comes in from the door. He apologizes. He's, uh, he's late because the switchboard was going crazy. There were 342 positive calls and only one negative. To which Corky's like, who would call a negative? Oh, Exxon. They said we should lighten up, which 
<clears throat> Exxon. Do you know what he cheers to? I don't have subtitles, so I couldn't figure. It's no. It's to the something. Oh, I di- I didn't write that down. I don't know. I I listened to it about five times this morning. I mean, trying, a lot of times I realized, Miles yeah. will cheers to like you know the team or all of them. I think or... it was something like team, but I could not figure it That's out. That's so funny. I didn't write it in my notes. My notes are mostly about Jerry. Know. To the blank. <laughs> you know what? Speaking of Jerry, the door opens and um someone enters. Lauren. Jay Thomas as Jerry Gold with a newspaper under his arm and a cigarette. That he lights as soon as he gets to the corner of the bar. Because you can do that in bars back then. Yes. It's funny to me how recently you could do that in bars. Mm. Um, I mean, I remember in college going to uh, Perkins and the smoking section was just like a non-closed archway mm, yeah. difference. Yeah, it was like, this is a smoking table. And it's like, well, it's right next yeah. to the non-smoking well, table. It's, it's it's in the sm- yeah. non-smoking Oh, God, air. remember that? When they'd be like smoking mm-hmm. or non? Oh, my God, yeah. I just had a yeah. huge flashback of, yeah, that's such a thing that certain mm-hmm. generations don't know. Going to a restaurant with your family and asking, do you want to be in the smoking or the non-smoking? Smoking or non-smoking. <gasps> oh, my God, I had like totally burn that out of my brain well and i remember waiting longer for a table because you didn't want to be in the smoking yeah section. exactly we did we always had to wait mm-hmm. crazy yep. oh back to jerry nice changes so before we get into our, our little sidebar about uh, about jay and jerry i just want to read the uh, the individual snap reactions yes to please. see <laughs> so we see him walk in he lights up the cigarette and there, Murphy, the first to spy him, says, ah, no, Jerry Gold. Like, there isn't enough pollution. Love it. Frank says a very interesting line, which is, uh, shouldn't he be rounding up guests for next week's show, or did the world run out of wife-swapping skinhead transvestites? To which I also want to say, while that is a, a problematic phrase, I think I just want to call it the fact that I think it's actually more commentary on Jerry's show yes. than it is the writers or Frank. I don't think that either of them quote unquote came up with that phrase I think it's a commentary that that was a a headline Jerry just had yeah and going back to that Jerry and his people suck yeah and going back to <laughs> when we talked about that kind of television in the first time mm-hmm. Jerry Gold's name is mentioned that was rampant on daytime yeah on, on, and that was the point like that is the sh- like we hear more and more what Jerry has on yeah. his show like he, the point was is that he was af- as offensive as yeah, possible I want to say I know Jerry's not a daytime show but I just think of like Donahue and stuff like that Exactly. Um, And then we get to uh, Jim's reaction, which is one of my favorite through lines of this segment. He says, I don't know what it is about him. Oh, it gets to me like no one else can. Can I can I take a moment here? So I pulled up the script because I realized we have the script for this episode. Miles (gasps) says to the A team. Oh, he says to the A team. To the A team, which I doubt is going to be actually a reference to the A team. I think it just means as in like the front team, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like we are, we are, we are team A. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Thank you for finding that. You're welcome. Because I, I realized also somewhere. we have the description of Jerry, which we I know we like to read on the show the first description <gasps> of characters. When Jerry walks in, he's described as a guy in a bad sports jacket enters. He reeks of bad taste, smugness, and his ever-present Marlboros. This is Jerry Gold. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like they summed it up well. Very well. Yeah. Yeah. He um, he really lived that. Yes. Continue, Jesse. So Jim. Jim oh. is frozen beyond normal Jim stiffness. Yes. And he says, I don't know what it is about him. He gets to me like no one else can. Makes me so mad every time. I just can't. The words don't. I could just. And then he just drinks. <laughs> Jim in this segment at Phil's Firm. is, oh my <laughs> God. Just get ready. I'm going to read them all. Yeah. And then Corky says oh no he's coming over here he always touches me 
Yeah. So I want to remind our audience that this was not the first episode of Jerry Gold that I saw. Mm-hmm. My introduction to Jerry Gold was as a love interest in mm-hmm. his end of season two episode, Heart of Gold. So mm-hmm. I did not see this episode for years of being this a version. big, you know, Jerry Murphy shipper. And obviously this is, you know, before Jerry evolved a bit as a character. Um, but I am not cool with him always touching Corky without permission. Just want to put that oh, out there. And let's let's be again. Uh, let's remind that um it is important for us to balance holding pop culture accountable um, from a modern perspective exactly. and also recognizing the time period. I agree. The thing that I like about this moment is as opposed to it being something where it's like, it's fine, it was the 80s or the 90s. What I like is that this behavior of his is abhorrent in this episode. It is it is not something that we're just shrugging off. Like mm-hmm. part of it is the fact that he is that guy. Yeah. He is that, you know, like that predecessor to Bill O'Reilly that comes over and calls a woman sweet cakes and touches her too much and does what he does at the end of the segment, which we will talk about later. It sets him up. So what I appreciate, yeah, it sets him up very well as a, um, Jerry would not be doing well in the Me Too era. No, he would not. It like this. No, not this Jerry. And it's funny that you say Bill no. O'Reilly because in um, mm-hmm. one of the last interviews that Jay Thomas did before he passed, um, I'm not sure how long, you know, but it was one of the ones that I could find. He was on the um, Gilbert Godfrey podcast and he mm-hmm. referenced Jerry Gold that he felt as in a, a Today reference that he would be like a Bill O'Reilly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... It's so interesting being three decades later and seeing what came of those people. Mm -hmm. And it is, yeah, it's not far from, you know, the Alex Jones that we have now. Mm. So before we get into uh, Jerry's interaction with the group, do we want to talk a little bit about? Yes, let's talk about Jay Thomas. Shall we? Do you, I'm sorry, Lauren, do you want me to take this? um, Oh, you know. As the, as the Jay and Jerry. I'm not really prepared. Um, That's what I thought. As she picks up, you can't see this, but as she picks up sheets of paper. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no one is more ready to talk about a character. I mean, I could probably do it without Lauren. the paper, but I was so afraid that like I would uh, forget something, you know, so I want I, I wanted like at least like a little cheat sheet for myself because Lauren, the, the microphone is yours. Thank you. Although I do have some new information that I thought of as I was prepping this. Oh. I believe that to describe to people just how much Jay Thomas worked in the 90s on television which was one of the mm. reasons why I became such a big fan was because he was on everything. I mean, I particularly yeah. liked him on Murphy Brown. That was where I found him and loved him the most. But as someone who wanted to be an actor and a working actor, I would go, oh, well, he's on everything. So, of course, when I was a kid, I didn't realize how lucrative mm. uh, season regular contracts were as a kid. So I thought, well, that sounds like a great job going from show to show and playing a different character all the time and having all this, you know, creativity to play all these different parts and be on all the shows. I completely agree with you. I think growing up watching television in the era that that both of us did, mm-hmm. it really informed to me what I thought a working actor meant. Yes. And also, I there are certain actors that I have just a very specific kind of familial reaction to because they were in everything. Yeah. Um, and it made me really appreciate character actors in general. Same. But like Jay Thomas is somebody that I see it, like I think of him from Mr. Holland's Opus. I think of him from Murphy Brown. I think of him just from so many things because I just knew him without being caught up in the celebrity of him. I knew him from his work and from and from recognizing him and his his prolific career. Yeah, he played himself on Sybil. Mm-hmm. At, oh yeah, Sybil, of course. T- yeah. yeah, but at a time nowadays, 
the the level of actor that he was, yeah, maybe not you know name recognition to an audience would not have mm-hmm. played himself. But back then, he was just yeah. the sitcom guy. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so it dawned on me though that what Jay Thomas in the '90s was to television is what Kevin Pollock was to film in the '90s. Oh yeah. Oh Ke- Kevin, Kevin Pollock. Same reaction. He's the okay, Kevin well, Pollock of television. Done. So there real. you go. Right. So yep. Jay Thomas was born in 1948 in Texas, but surprisingly enough to many people was he grew up in New Orleans, went to high school in Florida, I'm assuming just because of the, the proximity. Uh, he is not a New York Jew, as many people think assumed. and assumed and were many of the roles that he played. In fact, I couldn't find the article, but I remember reading that a Jewish organization wanted to honor him at one point, <laughs> and he had to inform them that he was not in fact Jewish. Well done. Yes, right? That's a good actor. Yeah. And uh, he actually won two Emmys for playing Jerry Gold, uh, one for this season, not this episode. We'll get to it at the end of um, season two. And then also Mm -hmm. his second episode as Murphy's Love Interest, his third episode, which would be the third season, Gold Rush, which is one of my favorites. And I do believe Mm -hmm. that he was robbed from his third Emmy because they changed the rules one year for guest actor. But I'll go into that later. I have a bit Mm -hmm. of an issue with that. He was Mm -hmm. robbed. Anyway, so he actually was a quarterback in high school. And I mention that because it'll become important when I talk about the later part of his career. But eventually his true passion was radio. Uh, He started off in high school and college and really, you know, regionally um, became quite successful. This is something I didn't know until uh, I read one of his obituaries, but he earned nicknames such as the Mouth of the South, (laughs) the Scorpion, and the Prince of Darkness. What the I know! So he went from being like a radio DJ to to like a metal DJ guitarist. Uh, apparently, right? And it makes you go, well, of course he won two Emmys playing Jerry Gold. Maybe he yes. is Jerry Gold? Me? Don't know. Anyway, also interesting enough, at this time, a young Howard Stern was very influenced by him because eventually he did come mm-hmm. to the New York market, which is at least at the time was a big radio market for someone of his, his caliber. So that was a really big mm-hmm. you know, step up to get a job in New York. So apparently a young Howard Stern listened to him and he really idolized Jay. And I think you see that. If you're familiar with Jay's mm-hmm. radio work, I am not as familiar. I've listened to a couple of episodes. I'm more of a fan of his, his acting work. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was quite popular. And at one point in the 90s in, in California for Power 106 had the top rated morning show. Well, he was also doing television and had the radio wow. shows. Um, so he had a very long day. It's kind of amazing how he did that. But anyway, going back, um, his radio show in New York was 1976 to 1979. And he also was doing some stand up, although he had said that he sort of started to realize that the comedy world and stand up, you know, the lifestyle. He wasn't really a comedian in that sense, you know, hmm. but he did do stand up. And he got a really big television gig in 1979 on Mork and Mindy as Remo uh, Da Vinci. Mork and Mindy. He was in the first and second season. Now, I also should say that um, he did plays in New York. He did a play by Wendy Wasserstein. And at one point, he was directed by Barnett Kelman in a play. I can't find out what that play was, but that is significant, Hmm. obviously, because it would help him later on when he met Barnett again. Um, Which Wendy Wasserstein did he do? I'm pretty sure it's Isn't It Romantic? He was a replacement. Ah, where he played gotcha. okay. a Jewish fellow. Huh, shocking. shocking. 
Now, what's interesting is that I recently heard the story on the same um, podcast that I had referenced before that things were not working out so well for the first season of Mork and Mindy. It was obvious they kept pushing the you know uh, storyline towards other people, and to get him to leave the show, they thought they would just put him in less episodes, you know, shrink his order and pay him less. And most actors would go, "Well, how dare you?" And then would leave the show. But he didn't have an agent at the time. In fact, he said he was mm. literally picking up his ten thousand dollar checks at the window with like the drivers oh, that's so real <laughs> so they called him in new york his lawyer and was like well this was going to happen and he was like well nine thousand dollars a week for maybe eight out of 13 episodes is not bad like i'll take it it was very obvious they didn't want him there <laughs> yeah but um but he i kind of love that story it's like well yeah yeah like right now i would take that right Honestly, I think that's one of the best career moves you can make is to just when people are pulling that kind of politics, Mm -hmm. just blink and be like, I don't know this is happening. It drives them insane. Yes, right. He's Mm -hmm. in an episode of Family Ties with Susie Plaxton, who eventually starred in Love and War with him. We love Susie. Uh, Love and War was created by Diane. And we'll get into that later. A very famous guest spot on Golden Girls. And then famously, sort of his, I think most people around that time before Murphy Brown would have known him from Cheers, where he played Eddie LeBeck. Oh, yeah. Who was married to Carla. They had twins. And then eventually in 89, so around this time, he just died in a Zamboni accident (laughs) dressed as a penguin, which I believe is why he's in a whale outfit later on in Murphy Brown. But we'll get into that later. But he was famously fired from Cheers because on his radio show, he was making jokes about Rhea Perlman. And he said Mm -hmm. one that was a little too far. Again, you know. Howard Stern, think of this, you know, he is a controversial character and I don't want to sugarcoat Jay, you know, this is who he was. And Diane English has actually said that she found him so funny on the radio that one time driving in her car, she almost hit an abutment. He thought he was going to be a series regular and instead they fired him and made B.B. Newworth a series regular. So I mean, which as somebody who's a big fan of of Frasier and and the insanity that is Lilith, it opened a window is all I'm going to say. Seriously, though, because then he was able to do Murphy Brown. Really? Exactly. So it all worked out. It all worked out. And then when Diane left Murphy Brown after the fourth season and created a show called Love and War, which is loosely based on her relationship with her husband uh, at the time, uh, with Susan Day and eventually Annie Potts, who I think was much better for the two of them. I loved their chemistry together. Mm -hmm. And also Joanna Gleason was in this show. He played a Jewish fellow. I think you see Hmm. a a trend here. And then eventually also appeared in Inc. as the same character, which was a show that Diane uh, came on to retool, which was with uh, Mary Steenburgen and Ted Danson. Mm -hmm. So other than Candace Bergen, he has done the most Diane English work, which, you know, I think is great. Some people just find, I don't want to say the word muse, but someone who just gets their writing and they write really well Well, to them. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason that... Like you see a lot of uh, Bradley Whitford in uh, Sorkin-esque yeah, roles, you, even if it's not Sorkin. It's somebody who gets the writing, who knows how to deliver it, who just has the, we talk about Sorkin a lot, big fans. Somebody who can do a walk and talk. The second that somebody does that really well, you're going to keep bringing them back because they yeah. just know what they're doing. Now, I'm going to jump ahead because it's funny that you mentioned The West Wing or Aaron Sorkin <gasps> because... Something else I found out from this podcast, which I never knew, was that Jay had a final callback for the West Wing. Uh, Of course he did. Uh, But he got (laughs) literally kicked out of his audition. 
<gasps> for saying something insulting that I cannot even say on this show. So I'm going to put a link to this podcast because you guys should listen to it. Mm-hmm. It was so insulting that he left LA to move to New York for a while where he did a radio show there. And I Damn. do remember I did not see him on TV for a while after that. So, um, and he said the casting director, this is what he said, every time he would see him, would hug him and go, that was the most amazing thing I ever saw. You tanked your career, but it was amazing. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> how do I not know this? I know. I don't know. I didn't know it either. I mean, the, I'm so the excited. The Cheers thing didn't it. come out to like the oral history, you know, so a lot of this yeah. stuff, you know, comes out after the fact. And also he auditioned for Frank Fontana. Yeah. But everyone said that he was so insulting that when they thought of Jerry Gold, they thought, oh, well, this Jade Thomas that character guy. should be perfect because apparently he came in and insulted Barnett Kelman. Because he had known him back home. But it's funny because then years later, because I'd always known the story on this same podcast, Jay told the story and he said, oh, I went in for this character that was obnoxious. So I played the part. He was auditioning for Frank Fontana. Okay. So, which I will say that is one lens of Frank. True. I mean, maybe that's how we saw it, you know? Yeah. I mean, that that is like, we all meet different types of people. Some people are like, oh, they're so charming. Some people are like, oh, they're far too much. So he could be one that was just like, I don't find Frank charming. I think he's obnoxious and awful. So that's what we're going to do. Yeah. Um, I will say it's I feel like this is a great example of the the line between being yourself. Yes. And um, and knowing that that will take you somewhere and finding restraint. You know, we talk a lot in our like Me Too era about people who are like, what? That's just the way I am. Like, you just got to. You know, like just let everyone's allowed to be themselves, but I can't react the way I'm going to react. It's like, well, no, because you're assaulting people and crossing lines. Yeah. Um, but there is something to be said about being just being yourself, even if that's unlikable, uh, because eventually you're going to get the career you were meant to have. However, what I like is that within the story of Jerry Gold, uh, of Jay Thomas being himself, it didn't always work out well for him. Yeah. And it's nice to be like, yeah, well, luckily a perfect role for you came up and you were given another chance in the industry. But there, there was a risk to being like, I'm just going to be myself. Yeah. Like I admire him for it. Actually, yeah. I, I do as well. And, and eventually, you know, he had a very popular, serious FM show it was extremely mm-hmm. popular. And I also should put a link. There's a really great tribute that his show did to him. That was, uh, you know, really lovely. I think a lot of people also will know Jay from his many appearances on late night with David Letterman it became a tradition in the early 90s for him to come on, tell his long ranger story, and then hit a meatball off the top of a Christmas tree, yes, oh. with a football. Again, I told you that the quarterback thing would come back again. And the oh. only one year he didn't do it. Um, Dang. Yeah, uh, because he was waiting backstage and there was some NFL guy on, again, I don't know, sportsy stuff, um, who couldn't get it off. And so huh. Jay ran out. He wasn't supposed to come out from the dressing room, took the football, powered it, and took that meatball right off. And then it became a tradition. And, and David Letterman has said that he feels that it is the funniest story that he's ever heard. <laughs> and it's based on a real story. But it's the way you tell the story. We mentioned his um, real great friendship with Richard Dreyfus. Richard Dreyfus brought him on a lot of projects, including a great series I loved called Max Bickford. But just quickly before we end, I want to just give this really great quote that Richard Dreyfus said about Jay, which is, um, he was a hell of a companion and easy to work with. He was light on his feet intellectually and he was fun. And he mm-hmm. was, you know, very, very saddened to, um, as we, we all were, 
Um, Jay passed away August 24th, 2017 of throat cancer. Mm. Um, he had three children. I want to end on a kind of a nice story, not on the sadness yeah. of Jay's death. And um, one of his sons had been given up for adoption. His uh, woman he was dating in college became pregnant. They both agreed that it was better for the child for him to be adopted. Uh, this child was named John Thomas, which is Jay Thomas's birth name. Oh. And he was known as JT. Oh. Jay Thomas's real name is John Thomas Terrell. And he mm -hmm. changed his name, as we've mentioned in the past, for union purposes. JT Harding is actually a songwriter, and he's written songs for Uncle Cracker and Kenny Chesney. Hmm. They found each other and became quite close, which is really lovely. And he said that not only, not only did his adopted father work at, at a rock station, very similar, obviously, to, you know, Jay's story, named him not knowing after his birth father. And at his first apartment in L.A., his son, J.T., said that there was a big billboard for Jay's radio show out his window. Oh. Yeah. It's, uh, I'll put some clips. There's some really great stuff on the full story. It happened. In fact, he even said that Jay did the voiceover for a, a Twizzler commercial when he was a kid. And cool. he was obsessed with that commercial and he never knew why. <laughs> yeah. It's really kind of beautiful. And um, particularly the interviews you see, you know, how... Um, close they got jay actually spoke at jt's father's funeral oh that's lovely yeah it's really quite lovely join us next week for part two sidebar while we're pat oh i can't hear you why can't i hear you oh hello i thought you were like pausing to be like okay and we move on i was gonna be like well we're paused and then i saw your hands moving and i was like oh no she's talking <laughs> how do we know that lauren's talking her hands are moving